I don't know about you, but have you ever felt a temptation in your life to not obey God? You ever felt a temptation in your life to not obey God? I ask that question knowing full well every single one of us knows that temptation. We may have to have a conversation we know we need to have. God wants us to, but we don't have it. Or we may have to engage in a task we'd rather not do, so we don't do it. Or we know we're supposed to obey a biblical command, but we'd rather just ignore it. And so we don't do it. And then find later, there's always a price to pay. None of us are alone in this, and that would include the individual we're going to be looking at for our next four times together, a man named Jonah. Jonah. And we're going to study the Old Testament book that bears his name and look at our missionary friend and his missionary endeavor, and it will help us understand how to obey God even if we'd rather not. I know this is a very, very familiar story, and I'm glad your presence here tonight shows that there's a lot more to understand than the basics of it. So what we want to do is unpack the deeper meaning and deeper significance, and the deep meaning and significance of this book cannot be understated. I'll bring out some of it, and I'm sure I'll neglect others of it, not by intention, but just by the fact that it's so deep. And I think we'll all be able to fully appreciate it. If you have a Bible, open to Jonah chapter 1, and... I want to do what we always do when we study books of the Bible, which is pretty much all that we ever do at Common Ground, though we do topical theological series too. I want to survey the book. So let me do a survey of the book. And when you want to survey the book, you ask the basic questions, who, what, where, when, why, how. But let me frame them for you this way. The first question you always want to ask is, who's the author? You know, who wrote the book of Jonah? So it's the first point in your notes. And the answer is, most likely it was written by Jonah. If you read Jonah, it does not identify the author. It does not say, hi, I, Jonah. Not only is this a story about me, I'm writing it. Uh, But tradition is one of the main reasons why we believe Jonah wrote the book. Jewish tradition that Jonah wrote the book. It also makes plenty of sense, though this wouldn't preclude this from being the case, it still makes plenty of sense that Jonah would be uh, the one to write the book. He'd be in the best position of all to talk about his experience on on a ship in a storm. He'd be the best person to talk about going through the intestinal tract of a great fish. I think he'd be right there for that. And he'd be able to talk more personally about the dynamic of how he felt underneath the plant in Jonah chapter 4, the least familiar part of the story, and all that represents. So the answer is most likely Jonah. Let me ask another question under this authorship. The question that fundamentally is asked of this book is, is the book of Jonah a literal story or a fiction or a myth? And the answer is, I believe it's an absolutely literal story. Of course, the people that reject that it's a literal story do so for a a number of reasons, but they fundamentally go back to this. Uh, How could a person be swallowed by a great fish? We're going to tell you how it can happen, literally, not just in Jonah, next week. How could a plant just grow up really, really quick and and die really, really sudden? How does this all happen? Um, How does a whole evil nation who believes in many, many gods repent in Nineveh to Jonah's preaching in chapter 3? How do all these things happen? And it's called the greatness of God and the miracle power of God. But there are other tangible reasons. Number one, the narrative used in Jonah, the narrative style, is very similar to other Old Testament prophets narrative styles. Second, miracles can and do happen throughout the Old Testament especially. If you rejected the authenticity of stories based on whether a miracle is involved or not, you'd throw away so much of the Old Testament. And yet archaeology and so much more validates the veracity of the story. And then third, and perhaps most devastating to those who argue it's not a literal story, Jesus speaks of Jonah, and his story is real. You can read it in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 11. Every time he says something like this, 
A miracle adulterous generation seeks after a sign. By the way, shouldn't a lot of Christianity hear that message? The signs and wonders movement. Jesus says a wicked adulteration. Adulterous generation is always looking for signs and miracles and, and, and all that stuff. But none will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And then when you read, he expands upon it. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so is the Son of Man in the heart of the earth. He literally ties the reality and veracity of Jonah's existence to his very own crucifixion and death in the tomb. You have to do serious damage to the truth of God to reject it. Second question is the date. The date was, it was written somewhere between 800 and 750 B.C. It was written during the time of Jeroboam II. Not Jeremiah was a bullfrog, just Jeroboam, J-E-R-O-B-O-A-M, the second, because there was a first. He was the king of Israel. Remember, after the third king of Israel, there was, there was Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon, Israel divided. There were ten tribes to the north called Israel, headquartered in Samaria. Two tribes to the south called uh, Judah, headquartered in Jerusalem. Jeroboam II was a king of the northern tribe in Israel. And this was during the time. Jeroboam, by the, Jeroboam II, I should say, reigned from 782 to 753 B.C. It was also during the time of Amos, Hosea, other prophets, minor prophets that are um, in the Old Testament. By the way, Jonah falls in the minor prophets, which is the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And it was after the prophet Elisha. Remember, there was the prophet Elijah, and then there was the prophet Elisha, his, uh, for, uh, uh, the one that followed him as a prophet in study under Elijah. And, and Jonah follows them. Israel was in a state of resurgence and prosperity again. Damascus... The, uh, was uh, in, in Egypt was be- just beaten by Assyria. They were a thorn in Israel's side. And by Assyria, Nineveh, the capital, the people of which we're going to speak of in the study of Jonah, by them taking out Damascus in, in, in Egypt, it weakened Israel's enemy. And they got um, um, prosperous. But they also simultaneously got arrogant. And when they got arrogant and needed repentance... God had to do something to discipline them, and he would. We know from history, shortly after the ministry of Jonah, again, sometime between uh, 800 and 750 was the reign in which uh, Jonah uh, ministered. 722 B.C., we know that the northern ten tribes fell to the Assyrians. To the Assyrians. The third question to ask, not only is the author date, it's the background And it's really simple. The background involves the evil and much-hated Assyrian world empire. See, if you don't understand this, you will not understand Jonah's reticence to preach to them. Jonah did not want to preach to them because the Assyrian world empire was very evil and much-hated. It was a world empire. It was emerging as a world empire. And they started to see decline, but it was still a huge threat. And definitely the next threat to Israel after Egypt. They had a reputation as an evil and cruel nation. By the way, when we finish this study of Jonah, we're going to study the short book of Nahum. You go, why did I pick that? Number one, because it's short, to wrap up the calendar year. Number two, because Nahum is a follow-up, a fascinating follow-up to Jonah. So I'll spare you the details, but in Nahum, God will outline and chronicle why Nineveh, the capital city, and the nation... Assyria were so evil. What they did to people when they conquered them, not pretty. Made Hitler look like Mother Teresa. They had that reputation. No one liked them. No one felt any sympathy for Nineveh or Assyria except God. Can you feel the tension already? I mean, I already said Hitler was better than these people. You don't feel sorry for Hitler, do you? I don't. But maybe in one small sense, I should. Maybe in some small sense that he would repent. If he's in hell, like I suspect, he deserves to be there. Not suggesting anything else. But what I'm saying is every human being matters to God, even people that are wicked and evil. Yet God calls Jonah to share salvation with them. 
You feel his tension? The fourth thing I want to cover are some of the key things that surface in the book. The first key theme is the problem of human rebellion. This is fascinating. In my research, I found that Jonah may be the only Old Testament prophet to reject his mission from God. Other Old Testament prophets had their own problems, but he's the only one who overtly rejected his mission from God. And that's according to the research that I was able to garner. I may be, the research may be wrong. I cannot think of anybody who said, I will not do what you say. In the understanding of the problem of human rebellion, we're going to see why we rebel. When we look at Jonah, we can look at our own lives. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. To read the stories of others and not go, oh my goodness, how could he be so stupid? But to say, oh my goodness, how could I do the very same things God already warned me I shouldn't do? So we're going to see the problem of human rebellion all throughout. Why we're rebellious, what drives it, how we cannot be rebellious. Second, we're going to learn about the grace and compassion of God. Many people say, ah, in the Old Testament, all God cared about was Israel. And in the New Testament, you know, they rejected Jesus as a nation and then he opened it up to everybody. Not true. Not true. Many portions of the Old Testament show God's compassion and concern for people who are non-Israelites. And we're going to see the grace and the compassion of God. Even undeserving Nineveh experiencing it. That's radical grace. So the problem of human rebellion, the grace and compassion of God, and then third, we're going to see this tonight, again and again and again. I'll try to bring it out. We're going to see the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, that God has the right to rule, that God is over it all, that the whole world doesn't depend on what we do. You're going to die when God says you're going to die. Everybody who was born is born when God said they'll be born. Not, well, you know, if I didn't do this, I wouldn't be born. Oh, if I did not, I wouldn't, no, 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 no. I don't understand it all, but God has a sovereign appointment for everything because he rules everything. He's not beholden to us. He's not beholden to our words, our wishes, our commands, anything. He's sovereign. And what we see in this book is that God will get his work done. One way or the other, he'll get his work done in the world. If we cooperate with it, oh, we have the blessing of that. If we don't, his work will still get done. You don't have to be a Calvinist or whatever to believe that. It will happen. Now, let's look at the back of your notes, and I want to survey this book chart for you. And I know we don't have it up on the side screens, but Jonah's four chapters, the first, and the first two chapters and the final two chapters are two parallel cycles. So chapter one and two is cycle number one. Chapter three and four is cycle number two. I call this book Obeying God When You'd Rather Not. In chapter 1 to 2, Jonah fights God's mission. In chapter 3 to 4, Jonah fulfills God's mission. In chapter 1, God says, go preach to Nineveh. Jonah runs away, he's thrown into the sea. The location of chapter 1, he's in God's presence, then he's on a boat. This is fleeing from God. In chapter 2, God uh, says, you're going to get swallowed up by a great fish. Jonah prays inside the fish. He's vomited on the dry land. The location is in the belly of a great fish. Not necessarily a whale, though it could be. And this is praying to God. So fleeing from God, then praying to God. In chapter 3 to 4, under Jonah fulfills God's mission. In chapter 3, God says again, go preach to Nineveh. This time Jonah preaches to Nineveh, sees Nineveh repent nationally. And significantly. The location, of course, is in the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the region of Assyria, and he's proclaiming for God. And then in chapter 4, God asked the question, do you have a right to be angry? Because Jonah was mad that Nineveh repented. Jonah gets angry with God, and he experiences God's grace, as we're going to see in chapter 4. He experiences God's grace so that he can, once and for all, understand why God would distribute grace to Nineveh. And this takes place east of Nineveh under a plant. And again, Jonah's angry with God. So he's fleeing from God, chapter 1, praying to God, chapter 2, proclaiming for God, chapter 3, angry with God, chapter 4. I looked at a few other charts. This is a pretty fun way to look at chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Chapter 1, I won't go. Chapter 2, I will go. Chapter 3, I'm here. Chapter 4, I shouldn't have gone. (laughs) Here's another one. Chapter 1, protesting. Chapter 2, praying. 
Chapter 3, preaching. Chapter 4, pouting. With all those P's, you probably thought I came up with it, but i got to give credit where credit's due. And you can see all the other facts and details there. So let's jump right in and let's talk about see Jonah run. The folly of running from God. The first thing we see in the first three verses, we see Jonah running away from God's mission. So let's start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So this was a divine revelation. God literally spoke to Jonah and says, God, uh, Jonah, I'm going to give you direction. The word of the Lord, a divine revelation. God somehow speaking to Jonah, and it came to him. By the way, Jonah's name means dove. Interesting that he's a messenger of peace, a deliverer of a message. Interesting. And it says, came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And this is fascinating because Amittai, his father, his name means truth. Amittai means truth. So God is going to get his truth out through his spokesman Jonah. That's what prophets do. They speak the truth for God. And verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. It's called great because of its prominence, great because of its size. Nineveh, again, was the capital city of the then world empire, Assyria. Go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Again, the Assyrians in, 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 in capital city of Nineveh were wicked. They were brutal in war. They were arrogant in their status and they were idolatrous. They set up temples to these gods, Nabu, Asher, Adad, and Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. They, they had false gods galore. Verse 3, but, there's a strong contrast, Jonah ran away from the Lord. By the way, can you run away from God? <laughs> he was so convinced, I'm going to run away from the Lord. More, more, more pertinently, I'm going to run away from what God asked me to do. I don't think he literally, I think he understood the omnipresence of God, that God is all everywhere. He said, but I'm going to run from the mission of God, and in that sense, I'm going to run from the Lord. And he headed for Tarshish. Now, we'll explain where that is. When I show you this map, when you really see the map and understand it, it's quite comical. He's going to head to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea by Jerusalem, and he found a ship bound for that port, the port of Tarshish. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord, or more particularly the Lord's mission. So Jonah, knowing the evilness of Nineveh and the Assyrians, and knowing God's graciousness, wanted to flee. Let's pull up the chart here. I wanted to show you, and I, I should have brought my, my pointer, but this is so comical. I want to show you four places. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I wish I had my uh, laser pointer. But if you look down and you'll see uh, just below the A where it says Gath Heifer. See that? Gath Heifer. It's just below the word Israel and to the right of the A. It's just north of Jerusalem. That's where Jonah was born. If you want to write down 2 Kings 4.25, it tells us that Jonah was from Gath-Hefer. Not Gopher, Gath-Hefer. That's where he was from. We don't know exactly where he was when he heard the call, but he went to the second place just below the A. That's, the Jop, that's Joppa. Joppa was a city, a port city in Judah, the southern region. Remember, he was, he was likely from the northern region, and he paid fare to go to Joppa. Now, where God wanted him to go, see the arrow up to B? Where is that? That's up and to the right. That's to the northeast. That's Nineveh in the empire of Assyria. That's where God asked Jonah to go. <laughs> where did Jonah go? <laughs> exactly the opposite way, all across the Mediterranean, and he's going to take a little vacation in southern Spain. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but it's probably there, or somewhere there in southern Spain. How would you like to go on vacation to southern Spain? Yeah, take the lesson from um, 
that, um, what's her name, uh, the lady in England who, topless and all that? Yeah. Kate, yeah, keep your top on if you go to southern Spain. Kate got in trouble for that. And that's exactly the opposite direction of God's call and mission for Jonah. So just leave that up for a second. Isn't it funny, I think, how we try to go exactly opposite of God? How many of us have ever gone to Tarshish in our life when God said, go Nineveh? Every one of us have tried to go to Tarshish in our life. Jonah running away from God's mission is foolish. It's foolish for us to do the same. Then we see Jonah's stormy boat ride to Tarshish. In verse 4 to 10, we pick up the story with him paying the fare, getting on the boat, and now he's cruising along the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know where, but somewhere. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Let's stop right there. We're going to see this throughout the chapter and certainly throughout the book, that God is sovereign. Who sent the storm? Satan? No. Satan, Satan doesn't control the weather. He can't do a single thing with the weather. Oh, it was so satanic that it rained. No, God controls everything. Satan has no authority over weather patterns. Never taught in the Bible, ever. So the Lord, in his sovereignty, sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. That's violent. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. That small g, they each had their own God. Joppa was, was in the Phoenician region. Phoenicians had many, many gods. They were polytheistic. So they, they had gods for this. You know, there, there are people that do this today. They, 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 they pray to this one for this situation, that one to this situation, that one to... And it's polytheism. God says, you come to me. They prayed to their gods. They were ignorant. They were polytheistic. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Standard practice. If you lighten the ship, maybe the ship can navigate and buoy up and down. And this was, they were sailors. They knew what they were doing. Sailors, mariners, whatever term you want to use. And they were trying to keep the ship afloat. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Here's the sailors calling on their false gods in ignorance, hoping for help. And here's the man of God cutting Z's in the bottom of the boat. Asleep at the wheel. And then a pagan, an unbeliever, has to wake up the man of God. Look at this. He fell into a deep sleep. Verse 6. Then the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? You think Jonah knew there was a storm? The Bible doesn't say, but I think he did. How could he have not? I think he just wanted to fall asleep on God and the whole situation. How can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. Maybe your God is the God of storms in the Mediterranean. Because we haven't found that God yet. See? See how they think? And you'll see this at the end, that they believe in God. It's not that they just exclusively became monotheistic. They just said, hey, we'll we'll believe in any God if it works. A lot of people believe, don't they? That's how a lot of people operate. Well, if that God works for me, I believe in that God. If the money God works for me, I believe in money. You know, if the business God works for me, I'll believe in that. If this God, that's that's how people can be. Whatever works. Well, whatever works doesn't always really work. Call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Do you ever wonder what does it mean to cast lots? I've always understood cast lots this way and it's true. That there are two ways in which the whole purpose of casting lots was to have an experience where one of two things, either a series of pebbles were put into a sack or a series of sticks were put into a stack or container or held by a neutral individual and everybody drew one and either the shortest or longest stick or the smallest or biggest pebble was the person who was responsible. 
the amazing thing is that sounds so hocus pocusy. It sounds so weird. But yet we see this in the Bible. From time to time, God uses it. And I don't understand why. He uses it here. You say, all right, that's the lots. The lots are the literal pebble and the, and the, uh, the straws. But what's the casting of lots? It was the literal putting of the lot, the pebbles or the straws, into the sack or into the container. So you cast them. When you drew them, that was the lot that you drew. That's what it's called, casting of lots. And it was a way to identify. They believed that God would show them who was the person. And guess what happened? The lot fell on Jonah. So was that coincidence? Was that a pagan God? No, it is God's what? His sovereignty again. God is sovereignly in control again. Verse 8, so they asked him a string of five questions. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine this? They asked, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? You know, you tell somebody's really nervous when they ask you a bunch of questions. Really nervous. I mean, palm sweaty, uh, mouth dry nervous. And when they heard the answer, verse 9, they got even more nervous. He answered, he only answered some of them, but he answered them in enough with this simple statement, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven. In other words, the cosmos God who made the sea. You know that sea that we're on? You know the sea that's got the storm? He made the sea. And the dry land, you know that dry land we need where we can dock? He made that too. And predictably, verse 10, this terrified them. Very strong word in the Hebrew. This terrified them. And they asked what have you done? What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Isn't that fascinating? Hi, what brings you on this boat to go to southern Spain? I want to get away from God. Oh, cool. A lot of people are just getting away from work, you know, getting away from the routine. You're getting away from God. Cool, okay, just be a little getaway from God. Cool. But now they were terrified. Terrified. Can I say something? Whenever we try to flee from God, we should be terrified. It's a terrifying thing to live life without God's hand on our life. Terrifying. Why do we run from God? That's where the terror is, away from God. It's a terrifying thing. Get in God. David says, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Whenever you try to fight and flee from God, you will experience terror. Terror. And that's what they experience. Now we see, after the storm kicks in, we see some efforts from the sailors, the mariners, to attempt to correct it. But now we're going to see how Jonah's going to take a swim in the Mediterranean. Verse 11 to 16. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And it was predictable. You could see what was happening. So they asked him, what should we do to you <laughs> to make the sea calm down for us? Like stab you? Bludgeon you? What should we do? Look at Jonah. Pick me up. Thank you. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. It's an incredible demonstration of contrition, repentance, sorrow, which will be further worked in chapter 2 in the belly of the great fish. So, it's me. It's me. This is why it's come upon you. It's my fault. I wonder if Jonah thought, well, maybe if I do this, <laughs> I won't have to go to Nineveh. 
I wonder if Jonah thought, you know, if I do this, the gracious God, which I have a feeling is going to be gracious to Nineveh, will be gracious to me and save me. You wonder what ones of those thoughts or combination of those thoughts filled his mind. Whatever, he demonstrates genuine contrition. Verse 13. The men showed some nobility. Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to roll back to land. But they remember this was the God of the land and the sea. And when they couldn't get there, for, but, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, though he wasn't totally innocent. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. What's that? God's sovereignty again. God's sovereignty is control. You've done as you pleased. This is your storm. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't roll. We couldn't, we couldn't do anything. So guess what? We see this as you. What a contrast um, to Jonah. Verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. The sovereignty and control of God. Verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. Can I translate? They said, let's add him. This, this is a good God to have right here. Let's add him to our list. The land and sea and heaven's God. Need some help in those three domains? He's your God. That's what they were saying. And they offered a sacrifice which in almost all religions, an offering of a sacrifice, we don't know exactly what it was, an animal, whatever it was, the offering of a sacrifice, very common in all religious practices of the ancient Near East. Today, Christians offer a sacrifice, which is what? The sacrifice of our own lives to God. Romans 12, 1 to 2. And then made vows to him. The vows apparently were probably something like this. God, we will serve you. Now, it does not say we will serve you alone. Maybe, maybe not. But they certainly, at the very least, added him to their pantheon of gods, for sure. Maybe they became monotheistic, we just don't know. What a contrast to Jonah. Again, doing a little research, let me give some credit where credit's due. In Nelson's complete book of Bible maps and charts, Listen to the contrast it makes between Jonah and the mariners. Let me just read it to you. Jonah, he was a Hebrew with a rich history of Yahweh, God's faithfulness. The mariners, they were Gentiles with no history with Yahweh, God. Jonah, he was monotheistic. That means he only believed in one God. The mariners, they were polytheistic. They worshiped many false gods. Jonah, he was rightly related to the true God. The mariners or sailors, they had no relationship with the true God. Jonah, he was spiritually insensitive, going in the wrong direction from God. The mariners, they were spiritually sensitive, moving in the right direction toward God. They prayed. Jonah, he was indifferent toward God's will in spite of knowing him. The mariners, they were concerned before God in spite of little or no knowledge of him. Jonah, he was uncompassionate toward Nineveh. The mariners or sailors, they were compassionate toward Jonah. Jonah was rebellious and therefore disciplined, but not destroyed. The mariners, they were brought to worship and commitment. Isn't it a fascinating study to compare Jonah with the mariners or sailors? I think it is. And it's a study of contrast. It's a contrastive, which is part of, interwoven throughout the narrative. And then in verse 17, Jonah swallowed up by the great fish. It simply says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Can you get a little picture of where we're going to go next time when you hear three days and three nights? Doesn't that immediately make you think of Jesus? And he's inside this great fish, which is like a tomb. You know, we're going to unpack all of that 
next time when we look at chapter 2. So, if we can move ahead to the next points, thank you so much. Let's look at not only see Jonah run, let's wrap up with see God work. Let me provide some lessons on trying to outrun God. Okay? Lessons on trying to outrun God. Here's the first. We can't run, or I'm sorry, we can run, but we can't hide from God. You ever hear this? You can run, but you can't hide. You can't hide from God. It's amazing how we know God is omnipresent, but we still try to run from him. Did you ever commit a sin? (laughs) Comma. (laughs) You have good theology so far tonight. I'm liking it. Comma. You know what's wrong. You feel bad about it, but you don't turn to God. Because of shame. And you flee. That is not the time to flee. That's the time to turn to God. I don't care if it's five seconds after you did something sinful. I don't care if it's just you're still in a meeting. You're still in a workplace. You're still at an amusement park. You're still somewhere. You just say it in your mind. God, bad move by me. Forgive me. It's amazing, we know that, but we still try to run from God and stay far from him. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is over our lives. The day Jesus Christ was recognized by you as the only provision for sin, when he bled and died on the cross, was buried and rose again, that day, you said in so many words, Jesus, I'm sick of my sin, I give my life to you. The goal of the rest of our life is to keep giving our life to him. Not that we keep getting saved, but that we keep growing in our salvation. That's why Paul says, I die daily. I surrender daily to God. So don't try to run from God. He's in control. You can't hide from him. Think of, is it Psalm 139? I go to the depths, you're there. I go to the heights, you're there. And go all points in between, you're there too. Second, God will do whatever it takes to get us back to where we need to be. God will do whatever it takes. This is the doctrine of eternal security. This is the doctrine of God's um, doing. He who began a good work will carry it on to completion. He will. Not he who began a good work in you will let you carry it on to completion. No, he will carry it on to completion. If we cooperate with God, things always go easier. If we try to flee from God's command, fight God's command, he will hunt us down no matter what it takes. He'll hunt us down. Not in some evil, but he will hunt us down to bring us back. God will do whatever it takes. Aren't you glad God will do whatever it takes? When we were in our sin, how did he hunt us down? He did whatever it took. He sent his incredible God-man's son, Jesus Christ, from heaven. He sent him. Think of Romans. He who spared not his son, how will he not spare all things? Third, God often sends us storms, but he also sends us salvation. Storms remind us that God is just. Salvation reminds us God's a God of grace. God sends a storm in your life to save you. He sent the storm into the sailors and Jonah's life to save them. You go, what about if they died? Then he would save them by bringing them to heaven if they're his chosen people. But God never sends a storm, in a Christian's life anyway, never sends a storm in a Christian life to destroy them, but to save them. God has not appointed us, the Bible says, God has not appointed Christians to wrath. And we're going to see next time how Jonah is a picture of Jesus Christ and a picture of salvation. So let's bow our heads and then uh, we'll have our time for Q&A. Father in heaven, it's amazing how we, we try to run from you.
That's why we, in part, recognize and associate with Jonah. I pray that we wouldn't try to run from you. I pray that we'd strive to obey you, even when it hurts, even when we have to swallow our pride. I don't like it, and I'm sure others don't like it at times. Help us to remember we can't run from you. We shouldn't try. And if we're right with you, there's no purpose in it, no benefit in it. I pray for a common ground midweek. I'm so excited by the attendance. I pray that you do a great work in all of us in this incredible study of Jonah. Thank you for it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have 756. This is all by design. We wanted to err on the side of earliness, but hopefully I gave you the whole deal. So if you have to head out, totally understand. But we have, it's 57 now, so we now have um, 13 minutes to do Q&A. If you have to go, totally understand. Nobody will question. So you can listen to the Q&A in the podcast, but if you want to stick around, we've got 13 minutes. Any questions that might come up? And I can get my little question stool. I cannot answer a question unless I sit on the stool. Stimulates brain activity. All right, any questions? Thank you for coming tonight. Awesome to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Lorene. Thanks, thanks, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. Questions? Yes, Sal. Where is Nineveh located now? I do not know um, modern geography. Um, let me see if I can quickly look on the back of this Bible if I got a good map. I mean, I know, I know where it is. I just don't know what country it is. Um, I may have to... It's, it's, um, it could be Iraq. I'm not 100% sure. Certainly part of Iraq is part of the Assyrian Empire. It doesn't cleanly fall into one country from what I can tell from modern day. Um, it may include um, parts, of F, uh, parts of Iran too. Um, but it's the Middle East, certainly. You know, it's the Iraq, Iran region. I could not tell you, you know, how many countries sail, but certainly those two countries are right smack in the region of where Assyria was. It was a widespread empire, so I, but I don't know the exact parameters or boundaries of Assyria. Good question, though. But you know roughly where it is, right? Middle East. Which, of course, people say, where's the Garden of Eden? Somewhere in the Middle East. Middle East. Some people believe that the Garden of Eden was in Iraq, the, re, the, 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 the land of Iraq. And, and that seems to make a lot of sense, where the rivers meet, etc. Good question. Any other question? What about that, Rosemary? I'm sorry? Correct. So the question is... Right. The, the question is, they didn't know the, the type of fish that he was in. We're going we're gonna to cover that in two weeks and when we meet again and... Um, I'm going to give you some fascinating information on that, but the answer is no. Even to this day, we do not know what the great fish was, but uh, I'll tease a little bit. There are, there are proven incidents where people have been swallowed by great fish and survived. By the way, um, so next time we're going to talk about that, the time after that, when, Nineveh, when Jonah preached in Nineveh, we're going to talk about some fascinating things that probably contributed to their repentance that will surprise you, one of which may be Jonah's resultant condition after sitting in the great fish for any part of three days. By the way, the expression, I'll answer a question that maybe comes to mind, is three days and three nights. In the Jewish mind, any part of a day was considered a day and night. Jesus was not in the tomb for 72 hours. He died on Good Friday. The Bible says he died on a day of preparation, which is the day before the Sabbath. He died on Good Friday. He rose on Easter Sunday. That's not 72 hours. Um, in, G, in the Hebrew idiom, when you say three days and three nights, it does not mean 72 hours. Any part of a day was considered a day and night. Example, we have idioms like this. We go, I worked all day. Really? You started at 12.01 a.m. and you punched out at 11.59 p.m.? No, it's an expression. That means pretty much for the available all day. I pr pretty much worked it. It's an idiom and expression. So Jonah was, he may have been in there 72 hours, but it's not required that he was. He had to have been in there at least 
like at least 26 hours, right? Had to have a little time before and after. So that's how you explain the Good Friday, Easter Sunday uh, timing conundrum. We see that in Esther. I forget where it is. Esther fasted for three days and three nights. And then it says on the third day, she acted on this fasting and prayer. Hadn't completed 72 hours. So, yes. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, does God often send us storms to save us? Is he saving us from ourselves? A lot of times, absolutely, fundamentally, yes, yeah. He's saving us from the destruction that we would cause ourselves. He could be saving us from the destruction that we would cause others. Saving us from any kind of destructive sin pattern, absolutely. And he's saving us not just to keep us from doing negative But as we see from Jonah, he saves us to advance us doing the positive. See? Salvation is not just rescue from sin. That's what it is. Salvation is also orientation toward righteousness. And he always saves us to keep us from the darkness of sin and to advance us in the endeavor of living righteously. Yep, that's a great question. Thanks. Uh, Over here, then over here. Yes. Yes, it, he, he may do that for people who aren't Christians, but there's no guarantees that he will. But for the believer, he guarantees he will. And write, and write this down. It's, um, is it Philippians 1.6? Being confident of this, that he who began a work, i.e. God, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, it's, Philemon, it's Philippians 1.6, because I'm thinking of Philemon 6, which is another great verse, but it's Philippians 1.6. That is the work of God. It's a great verse. So, great question. And then I think, um, yes, Sue. Jonah knew it was his fault. So why didn't he just jump in the ocean? Because he didn't want to. He wanted to sleep. He wanted the whole, no pun intended, he wanted the whole storm to just blow over. See? He wanted this to just all blow over. And obviously there's a spiritual journey. You know, Lord said go, prophet said no. He gets on the boat and he falls asleep. Then the storm comes and there's the beginning of this penitence, this sorrow, this repentance. It carries on further when we see in chapter 2 he's swallowed by the great fish and he gives a great psalm of salvation, as it's called, in chapter 2. So then the full repentance. The, the, The answer is because it took him a while to repent. And how many know that sometimes repentance is an event? And sometimes it's a journey. There are some things that you repent of instantly, and you really mean it, and it's done. And there are some things you repent of that just take you lots of time. And this is one of those repentance things that took him some time. And it just depends on the sin, you know. And so um, the biggest thing is that you at least get on the journey of repentance. You're dead in the water. It's game, set, and match for your life when you won't acknowledge your sin. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong. And everybody knows you did. But it doesn't matter if anybody knows. God does. So sometimes we repent quickly. Sometimes we repent slowly. Can I say something? Really, There's some people that never repent of their sin. Non-Christians, and there are even some Christians that die in a backslidden state because they won't repent of their sin. It's a very sad thing. But I think that's the best answer is that Jonah, it, he the full sludgehammer of repentance did not come upon him. I wonder if he was really convicted when he saw these sailors demonstrating more holiness than him. Interesting, isn't it? Yes, Donna. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so Donna's got a very good question. And this is a very good question to ask about a lot of things. So it applies to Jonah and other things. The question was this. If Jonah was a prefiguring of Christ, or a better word is a, a type or picture of Christ, the Greek word tupos is used, type or picture of Christ, um, <laughs> Jesus never sinned, Jonah sinned. Whenever we talk about a type or picture of Christ, 
That doesn't mean every salient point about their life was a picture, but there were certain aspects of it. What we're going to see is Jonah's life was a picture of Christ and that God the Father um, put him in the great fish for three days and three nights. He, in effect, died, not literally, but in effect, was buried, and when he's vomited, was resurrected. In that sense, he was a picture of Christ, but nobody ever pictures Christ fully in every dimension. That is a profound question. Just because if you say, well, Joseph is a picture of Christ, he is. Daniel is a picture of Christ, he is. Moses is a picture of Christ, he is. Not fully. There are certain aspects of their life, certain accounts that took place in their life, which are a picture of Christ, but that does not mean that they're perfectly Christ. That is a profound and a very deep question. And I try to answer, here's, and one last thing, this is why I want you to come here, because I don't just want to say, this means this, this means this, this means this. I want there to be application, but here's, I want to teach you how to think biblically. So when I give you that answer, now you go, oh, that's how a type works. So now I've given you another little Bible study tool. That's my heart, to help you think biblically, not just have, well, I don't know the answer, but if you listen to this CD, I want you to think, as we said on Sunday, I want you to mature and think biblically, think theologically. can't tell you what a great question, a very thoughtful question. And I just hope that you understand that that's what a type does. It doesn't mean in every sense, but there's dimension of that life or that activity. Great question. One or two more questions. We have like two more minutes. Yes, Morella. Is it a coincidence that Noah sent out a dove after the flood and that Jonah's name is dove? Only in the sense that a, what a dove means was replicated in both instances. The dove, actually, I, I, and, and now that I'm saying that, I actually think the dove was a messenger, but it took on deeper significance. Even in our day, a dove is a picture of a messenger or, or peace. And um, uh, Jonah's name being dove was the messenger part and uh, maybe even the peace part. So I would say, I don't know that the one was a prophecy or prediction of the other or that there's any formal connection, but the meaning of, in both cases is very similar. That helps. Yeah, one last question, and then we'll wrap up. Yes, Dean? That's fascinating. So the question is, Jonah sleeps during this storm, Jesus sleeps during the storm in which the disciples... I, I would say no, because Jonah sleeping was avoidance. Jesus sleeping was to set up the fellas for a teaching on the greatness and the miracle power of God. So remember after that storm, if I recall, if it's the same story, he goes, who is this? That even the winds and waves obey him. <laughs> when they got Jonah sleeping, they go, who is this that is absolutely ignorant of this storm? totally different purpose. Father, thank you for this Q&A time. We've had a lot of fun. And I pray that you send us on our way, help kids get their rest, and uh, adults too. In Jesus' name, amen.